Well, indeed, let's open. If you have a Bible with you, you can open with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. If you don't have access to a Bible, in a little bit we'll put these words on the screen. You can see them there. To give context this morning for our passage that I'm going to read here in just a moment, we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. (laughs) The opening chapters of the Bible record the devastating event that set the trajectory of the story of God's salvation plan. The first man and the first woman who were made in the image of God, they were in the garden sanctuary known as Eden. They were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over creation. And into this garden sanctuary that Adam uniquely was to guard, entered an intruder, an anti-God creature in the form of a serpent who in his craftiness and deceit lured them into disobeying God, his clear command, with the promise of God-like autonomy and knowledge. You'll be like God. And they fell. The consequences for that act were devastating. That's probably an understatement. They were catastrophic. That action of rebellion subjects humanity to death. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. God had said, that is death as ultimately separation from God under His divine judgment. That relationship is severed. They are removed from the garden, as we know. It subjects humanity in some sense to the rule of this anti-God creature who triumphed over God's image bearers. Adam didn't subdue. He was subdued. This anti-God creature who, as the story unfolds, has different names. We come to know him as Satan, the adversary, the devil. He's called Diablos. He's evil. The accuser, the dragon, the serpent of old. Who now, now because of sin and rebellion, he wields the power of death. Yet, into this devastation and judgment, God speaks a very cryptic word of promise. Do you remember this word? I'll put it on the screen for you. Genesis 3.15, this is the beginning of God's redemptive plan in a very cryptic way. Genesis 3.15, when he comes in judgment of the man and the woman and the serpent here, he speaks these words to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's really remarkable in the midst of this judgment, devastation, he speaks this word that there's going to be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's remarkable because the story's not going to end here with this first sin. Eve's not going to die immediately, nor Adam. There's going to be a prosperity, a seed, a descendants continuing from The woman, but when he speaks these words, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, by the seed of the woman is going to come to mean as we go through this, those who belong to God. There's a promised seed 
descendants, those who belong to God, and the seed of the serpent will not be baby snakes, (laughs) obviously, nor is he referring just to demonic kind of creatures, but to mankind, human beings who are in rebellion, who continue in rebellion, who take the side of the serpent or the evil one, that there's going to be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's such a big part of the story. In fact, that little word seed becomes so important in the story of the Bible. But then he, at, right at the end of that promise, just notice he changes here uh, or specifies, he uses a masculine singular pronoun, he. So the word seed in both Hebrew and Greek is a collective noun, just meaning there's one form that's either singular or plural. You can say seed or plurality of seeds. So firstly, he's referring just seed of the woman, all that's coming, but then he specifies masculine singular, he. He shall bruise you, serpent singular, on the head, and you shall bruise him, singular, on the heel. That's a cryptic promise. What does that mean? Well, the Bruising on the head is a fatal blow. The bruising of the heel is some kind of injury, some kind of suffering. And what we have in kind of cryptic form is some promise that a seed, the seed of the woman, is coming to deal a fatal blow to the serpent, this anti-God figure, this enemy, and in doing so will be bruised on the heel. The question becomes, after Genesis 3, is who? Who is the seed that will deal the fatal blow? What does it even mean? How will he deal the fatal blow, and how will his heel be bruised, injured? So that really begins the story of the Bible. And while this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent It plays out, as we read the story, it plays out on a human level. We know, as Christians, we we know, as those who read the Bible, that there is a spiritual battle underway. We see the spiritual battle here. A spiritual battle continues. There's a spiritual enemy. So we believe in, without apology, as Christians, we believe in that there is an enemy by this name, Satan, devil, accuser, serpent of old, dragon, spiritual enemy who hates God and he hates you and he hates God's people and he seeks to ruin and he seeks to destroy and he seeks to kill. He's real. He's present and while we see conflict on a human level, we understand that ultimately we don't wrestle with flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, that that's real. And so it's not surprising now as you follow the story of the Bible when Jesus comes, who we know now, that's the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman in Jesus. We're going to see it again in the book of Hebrews. When he comes, it's not surprising that we see an overt conflict with the evil one, more on display. We see Jesus continually delivering and rescuing from these kind of demonic Forces. And as he approaches the cross, John chapter 12, we read the gospel of John before we started Acts. In John chapter 12, the great turning point of that gospel is he's, he's approaching the cross. His hour has come. He knows it's the hour for him to be glorified, that is to go to the cross. He says this, John 12, 30, John 12 31, now judgment is upon the world and now the ruler of this world has been cast out. The ruler of this world. He's speaking of this figure. In fact, three times in this last part of Jesus' life, he will refer to the ruler of this world. Elsewhere, he's called the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. He roams about like a roaring lion seeking to devour our faith. Jesus says as he approaches across the ruler of this world, has been cast out. What's all this have to do with Hebrews? (laughs) Well, as we turn to chapter 2 of Hebrews, 
as we've been seeing, our author here, the, the writer of Hebrews, wants us occupied with the Son, with Jesus, who is the seed. That is, He is the fulfillment of this plan that God has been unfolding in history since the fall. Here He is. He's, he's here. Listen to Him. The seed of the woman is here. And what's He here to do? Crush the serpent's head. Hebrews 2, we want to look at it. Just a a quick review if you haven't been with us. Hebrews 1 and 2, we've been looking at chapters 1 and 2. What is this all about? Remember, the writer of Hebrews, again, wants us to be occupied with Christ. Don't, Don't forsake Him. Don't let go. Hold fast to Christ. And the way He gives us to hold fast is by showing us who Jesus is, the beauty of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And that's the way he starts. So in chapters 1 and 2, I'll give you my one-line summary of these first two chapters. The eternal Son, God's final word, has now been exalted as the heir of all things, the author of salvation through his incarnation and suffering. That's, that's the message of these first two chapters. He wants us to see who this Jesus is, who the Son is. He's the eternal Son. He's the final culminating revelation of God in this salvation plan. And He is now uniquely exalted as Son, the heir of all things, the author of salvation, the source of salvation. And the way He comes to be exalted in this way is through His incarnate, His becoming man, and his sufferings. That's the path. The path to this glory is through suffering, through incarnation and suffering. So we've been asking the question here, chapter 2, why the sufferings of the Son? Why is this the path? They said this is what is so strange about our Christian faith. It's right at the heart of the Christian faith, the cross, the death of Christ, what we've been singing of. Why? Why the sufferings of the Son? Why is this the path to glory as the pioneer of our salvation? Why was it necessary for His incarnation and suffering? Or better, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, why was it fitting, appropriate? Remember Hebrews 2, just look back there, verse 10. This kind of section we're in, as he speaks of the death of Christ, him being made lower than the angels, it was fitting for him, fitting for God to do it this way. It was appropriate. It was in keeping with his character and his purpose. It was appropriate for God to do it this way, that is, to perfect or to qualify the pioneer of our salvation through suffering. This was fitting for God to do it this way. It was fitting For him, Jesus, to completely identify with those he comes to save, with those he sanctifies. That's verse 11. He who sanctifies, that Jesus, those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one. We're in one family. It was fitting, so fitting for God to do it this way, that he would come as a man, endure these sufferings in solidarity with us, his family so that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Not ashamed. The family. We are the children that God has given him. Now, he continues right on in our text this morning. He continues to give the appropriateness of Jesus' incarnation, coming man, and his suffering. So let's pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 14. I'm just going to read these three verses. Again, if you don't have a Bible, they're they're on the screen behind me here. So he continues. You can hear him. Since then, or therefore, since then, the children, who's the children? It's from verse 13. The children God has given to the Son. That's believers. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is who? The devil. And that he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, 
but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. He's just continuing to show the appropriateness of both the incarnation and sufferings of the Son. You see it there in verse 14, those first two words, since then. So he's, he's drawing a conclusion from what he's just talked about, how the Son, the Father gave his children to the Son. The Son is in solidarity with us, the children, brothers and sisters. Since then, and now he's just going to continue his argument. He's going to further his argument. Since then, these children that you've given me, they share in flesh and blood, speaking of human nature, he partook of the same. So he's explaining it for us more explicitly. Why he partook of a human nature, his incarnation, and his sufferings. So let's look at it under the, the heading, the Son's Incarnation. The Son's Incarnation. Now that's a big word, kids. If you hear incarnate, think Christmas. Remember Christmas. What, what happened at Christmas, kids? Right? Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary, right? Well, that's what we mean when we talk about the incarnations, when Jesus became a man, right? That's incarnate. So that's a big word. It's just we're borrowing this language from the Gospel of John. Carne is Latin flesh. Incarne, he comes in the flesh. He becomes a man. That's what we mean by this big word. But notice here in our verse, verse 14, right? We have one of the clearest statements, I think even more clear than John, the clearest statements of his incarnation anywhere in the Bible. He's, he's alluded to it already under different words. So remember back in verse 9? Speaking of Jesus, we see him who was made a little lower than the angels. Well, that's referring to his becoming man, but under the words of Psalm 8, he became lower than the angels, his humiliation. Again, verse 10, we saw, or verse 11, that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one. That is one humanity, speaking of his humanity. But now he makes it really explicit. So under his incarnation, let's just look at these two main things, the meaning of it and the purpose of it. The meaning and the purpose, really simple. His words are, are really easy to follow here. So A, the meaning. What do we mean by the incarnation? What are we celebrating when we come to Christmas? This is what we mean by it, and it's right here in our text. The eternal Son fully partook of a human nature in its weakness and mortality. The eternal Son, that's who he's been telling us about. He fully partook of a human nature in its weakness and mortality. He really did. Notice, again, just look at the verse. It's, it's right there on the surface. Since the children, as I said, that's believers. That's the children God has given to Christ. Since they share in Flesh and blood, literally, it's blood and flesh. <laughs> the inverse is the usual. I don't think there's any significance there. It's just another way of saying humanness. Blood and flesh, that's the way we're referred to. He's speaking of us as humanity, human beings. That's who we are. But when you use the language blood and flesh, it's referring to our weakness, our mortality, our subjection to corruption. Right. He's not saying, since the children are so strong and beautiful, he became like that. No, we're blood and flesh, weak, fragile, subject to decay and death. But it's our human nature. That's who we are as human beings. And even the way he words it, look at it carefully, he's going to use a couple different tenses here to, to get at this. He says, the children share in flesh and blood. That is our present ongoing condition. That's the present ongoing condition of God's people. That's who we are. We're just blood and flesh. That's our human nature. But then he switches. He says, he himself likewise also, the idea is at a certain point in time, came to share in, just uses a synonym, partake in this same humanity. We have always shared in this humanity, in this 
flesh and blood. This is our nature. But at a point in time, he partook of it. And he emphasizes, it's emphatic, he himself partook of the same. He himself likewise, in just the same way, partook of the same. He, he can't make this strong enough to say he was really human. He really took on human nature. But again, the way that's worded is, I think, so careful and so helpful because he's already said this son is eternal. Remember, he's, pre- he's the creator of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He had no beginning. This son is eternal, and at a point in time, he comes to share in our humanity. That's what we call the incarnation. So it's worded very well. The same way I referred to the Gospel of John earlier, John chapter 1, the same way he does it. In the beginning was the Word, uses that reference to the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This preexistent eternal Word, the Son, at a point in time takes on humanity. And as he does that, he never ceases to be God, the Son, can't cease to be who he is. And so when we talk about the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, by that we are talking about his human nature inseparably united to his divine nature in the person of Jesus. (laughs) And that's a mystery. So we speak of two natures in one man, the one person of Jesus. Fully divine and fully human. The fullness of deity in bodily forms. Paul expressed it in Colossians 2. That's who he is. At a point in time, he takes on humanity. Really himself, fully like us. So that, as we think, one more point about the meaning here. Jesus lived fully and authentically as a man in every respect, yet without sin. He lived fully and authentically as a human being in every respect. Oh, the writer of Hebrews is going to bring this out. This this is part of that appropriateness for God doing it this way, yet without sin, yet without sin. He's tempted, he does not sin, but he's fully human. That is, he's not Superman. He's not not some supercharged human being. He's not a demigod. You know, a demigod, half human, half God. Just a really powerful human being. He's not. He is fully and authentically Man, so we know, I referred kids to Christmas earlier, you know the Christmas story, he was born, (laughs) he's conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and he was born of a woman, he experienced that, so his humanity, his humanness has the same beginning as us, In, in the womb, conceived, born as a woman, increased in wisdom and stature, lived in the limitations of flesh and blood, this weak human nature. He lived consciously, voluntarily, in the limitations of this flesh and blood so that he knew, really knew weakness. He knew tiredness. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew pain. He knew suffering. And he knew death. That's the incarnation. Now, what I just described there is perhaps the most profound mystery and miracle of our faith. You know that? It really is. The eternal Son taking on flesh to live authentically, the God-man, Christ Jesus. And we, we should marvel at it. Never get over who He is and what He did. This is a great humiliation for the eternal Son. We just marvel at his humiliation, that he so identifies with us who he's coming to save, the children he's coming to bring to glory, 
that he fully takes our human nature. And the writer of Hebrews, as we explore this, wants us to see that he does it. The reason this is so fitting is not only for what he accomplishes for us, we'll get to that, but also for the kind of Savior that he is. For the kind of Savior, a sympathetic, come-to-your-rescue, who knows your suffering kind of Savior. That's where he's going to go when he's the high priest. So I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there next week. Now, this, I said this is the most profound, probably, mystery and miracle of our faith, and it's also one of the significant points of contention with those who reject the Christian faith and still admire Jesus. I referred a few weeks ago to Thomas Jefferson, biography I read, Spirit and Flesh, it's called. It's a great biography about his faith, and he hated this doctrine of incarnation. And he admired the man Jesus. And his goal, he thought, we need to return people to the, the human sage, Jesus. Right? He ridiculed Christians for this, and he thought by the time he died, all of America will be Unitarians. That's what Unitarians are. They deny this doctrine. All through history, people deny this doctrine that the Son, the eternal Son, has come fully in the flesh. I know the ladies, the women, many of you are studying the book of 1 John. And that's part of the heresy that's there, the spirit of Antichrist denying that the Son has come in the flesh. But it is utterly essential. Yes, it's a mystery. Can I explain two natures in one person? No, I can't explain that. But it is utterly essential for us. So let's move B now to the purpose. There's the meaning of the incarnation. What is the purpose? Here I'm thinking he gives a twofold purpose in these couple verses. So we're just narrowing our purpose right here. We're going to expand this as we go, but as you're reading the Bible, you're looking for these little connecting words, like words therefore and for that are connecting you, and you're also looking for words like that or so that in order that, because it's giving you purpose. So look at your text there, and you can see them. He himself likewise partook of the same so that, there's the purpose, and then he's going to add to that in verse 15, and might, so he gives a twofold purpose, and I say it that way, it's, it's inseparable, these purposes that he gives. So let's, let's think of them under one and two. Number one, first part of the twofold purpose, to render powerless the devil's power over death. That's what he says, and that's fascinating. The first thing he says about the purpose of the incarnation is that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, and in case you don't know who that is, he says, that is the devil. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. So much, almost all of the book of Hebrews is going to be focused on the purpose of the death of Christ as it comes to atonement, his priestly work, and all that he does. But here he starts it with connecting us to the big story of the Bible. That's why he started back in Genesis. That anti-God figure that still roams about. His head It's going to be crushed. He comes to render him powerless. So he connects it. One of the rare places in the book of Hebrews, he's connecting us here to that big storyline of the ultimate enemy of God. So to render powerless the devil's power over death. And so we probably ask, what does that mean that the devil has power over death? But God had power over death. <laughs> so, so what does the devil's power over death consist of? Well, obviously, it's not absolute. There's not two gods. The devil's equal with God, and he has the realm of death. And God, no, no, it's not absolute. God is ultimately over death. So it's not the devil determining and causing each person's death that he rules in that way. 
So what would that mean in light of the story of the Bible? That he has the power over death. I think it's this. I think it's back to the beginning. I think that's what he has in mind here. Back to the beginning of the story. The devil gained power over death when he seduced mankind to sin. Death is the penalty or the judgment of sin. So this is the Bible's perspective of death. Not merely the cessation of physical life, but death as the wage of sin and separation from God. Death as a penalty or judgment for sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we see at the beginning. The day you eat of the tree, you will die. And again, it it refers to comprehensively spiritual death, estrangement from God, and ultimately final death under His judgment. Yes, physical death is a sign of all of that. So He comes to gain this power, not because He has some inherent absolute power over death, but because of sin, the connection with sin and death. Sin leads to death. Death is the penalty for sin, the final separation under God's judgment. So He has the power of death as the one who brings in some sense, sin into the world through his temptation, and he is enticing and enslaving men and women to sin. That's what he wants to do. He wants to kill your faith and entice you and enslave you to sin. And death is his final weapon, you might say, because death leads to that final separation with God. Sin leads to that. So in that limited sense, he has the power over death. And Jesus came that he might render him powerless to vacate this power. (laughs) How do you do that? This way, next note, only through Jesus' death is the devil's reign over death canceled. Do you see that? Those first words and the purpose clause there. He himself likewise partook of the same, verse 14, that through death he might render him powerless, him who had the power of death. Only through Jesus' death is the devil's reign over death canceled. Again, that's the great irony of the Bible. That's the great plot twist of the story. How will he bruise his head? We're wondering. What kind of great victory will this be? Well, it's a victory that looks a lot like defeat. (laughs) Through death? That's what he said. Through death, he renders him powerless, the one who had the power of death. What looks like triumph, another one succumbed to the power of death, What looks like triumph for the evil one turns out to contain his defeat. (laughs) What a plot twist in the Bible. How unexpected, naturally, that this is the means of God's triumph when he promised that way back there in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman, he had to be the seed of the woman. He's a man, truly, flesh and blood. The seed of the woman is going to crush, bring victory, and he's going to do it through death. So now, now we know what the bruised head and the bruised heel cryptically back there refers, refers to. The, the bruised head is Christ's triumph over Satan by the cross is death, and his bruised heel is that very cross. His suffering, it is through suffering, through his death, that he gains this victory and defeats him renders him powerless, him who had the power of death. Now, when he uses that language, again, he's careful, that he might render powerless him who has the power of death. He's rendered powerless because the power of death is destroyed. That's what he's doing in his death. We're going to get to that next week. The power of death itself is destroyed. And yet, the devil is not yet abolished. He renders him powerless when it comes to the power of death. This power of his ultimately has been vacated. His great final weapon has been taken from him. But he's not yet destroyed, finally. 
He is a present evil today. He does continue to roam about like a roaring lion seeking to devour your faith. And we are called to stand firm and not be ignorant of his schemes. But he cannot ultimately harm you, Christian. Cannot. His great weapon has been removed. He cannot. He can harass you. Under certain instances, he can kill. By God's permission. But he cannot ultimately harm. He renders him powerless, him who had the power of death, which just tells us something, doesn't it? It's getting us to something, that there is something very unique and powerful about his death, Jesus' death, right? My death doesn't do that. Your death doesn't do that. What is it of this death that is triumph? What is it about this death that renders him powerless? What is unique and powerful about something seemingly so weak? That's where he's going. We'll get to it some next week here. Think on that. Here he wants us just to see the triumph of Christ. Before he he explains some of the nature of his death and how it works, he just wants us to, to behold the triumph of Christ over death and how fitting it was for him to deliver us this way. To deliver children, flesh and blood, who are subject to death, to deliver us through death as our Savior. How fitting for Him as our Savior. So, purpose twofold, I said. To render powerless the devil's power over death. And two, just follows right on, to free us from the bondage to the fear of death. Free us from the bondage to the fear of death. And you can see, they just go together, don't they? If He abolished the power of death, He took that weapon away from the evil one, it should lead us to be free from the fear of death. Now, notice how he says that, because he could have said, maybe what I'm expecting him to say in verse 15, as the second part of this purpose, is that he might deliver us from death, which is so true. Finally, our resurrection, he's going to deliver us from from death. That's ultimately right. But here he's thinking presently that he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He is thinking presently of his help of us right now, rescuing us from bondage to the fear of death. That's the effect of his delivering work should have on us presently to deliver us who are held in bondage to the fear of death. So just, again, note a couple of things. Death is frightening and produces a multifaceted bondage or slavery. Death is frightening. There is very much a natural fear of death. And that death, fear of death, produces this multifaceted slavery. Again, how he words this is interesting. He doesn't just say bondage to the fear of death, but he says that he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All kinds of, the fear of death leads to all kinds of slavery. And it does. Now, death is frightening. Because death is unavoidable. And it's so good for us to think about death. It really is. You say, that's kind of morbid. Christ won't be precious in what he did if we don't have a reality about death that's coming to all of us, no care how young you are. It's unavoidable. It's the unwelcome reality of life. One author put it this way, the fear of death haunts every aspect of human life from beginning to end and is the perennial and universal concern. 
Another said, death cast a shadow over the entirety of life, hovering like a scepter over every dimension of existence. It really does. We do our best to avoid it, I know. That is to avoid thinking about it. We won't avoid it, death itself. With all of our advances, all of our progress in medicine, I'm thankful for those. Take those. I'm thankful for doctors. Thankful for longer life and healthier life. But because of that, death doesn't stare us in the face all the time. It's, it's removed. It's sanitized. It's behind a curtain in the hospital. But with all those advances, the death rate the last time I checked was still 100%, right? right? You won't avoid it. We're not going to avoid it. I, I loved it. We were uh, visiting a couple weeks ago. We were in Charleston, South Carolina. Great city uh, to see in the history of that city. And uh, Will and I got to, got to go into some old churches, these great old churches in the historic district. And what did every church has as we walked in? You know what it had? A graveyard. Graveyard with dead people just all around you. Like just all kinds of old dead people just went and looked at, at that. Now, think of the effect of that. Every Sunday morning, you're walking in church, what are you walking through? Dead people. Like, yeah, that's where I'll be soon, right? I mean, that's the effect it has on you. What a good effect. Now, we, we have cemetery. The tour guide told us, you know, you know the difference between a graveyard and a cemetery. Well, graveyards are connected to churches. Cemeteries aren't. They're public. And so we, we move them away, right? But I think, boy, that's really healthy to just stare it in the face every Sunday because Christ will be precious then to us. Death, death is, I understand, it's naturally frightening because it produces, it's such a great sense of loss. It is loss. It seems so final. It's scary because it's unknown. It's scary because of the process. It's so inescapable. It's out of our control. And so there is a natural fear of death, either a fret and worry and so that we become consumed. Here's one of the forms of slavery. We become consumed with protection. Right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eke everything out of this life. I'm not going near any germs. Right, I'm, I'm going to protect. And it's just produced by this fear of death. Right, This anxiety. Now, again, common sense, I think, should rule in all those things. But we can become absorbed with those. Or, or we can go to the other extreme, right? And we just become enslaved to Pleasure materialism. I'm, I'm going to get every ounce of pleasure out of this life before I die. It's just, that's part of that fear of death. So it, that's why I said it's manifold slavery the way it shows up. We, we have our bucket list, right? Got to get it in before we die. So there's many expressions, I think, of the fear of death. And here's the irony. You know the irony? Because there will be people, I know there are people who say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death, just the cessation of life. I, yeah. My answer is that you, you really should be. Because biblically, if we, if we really understand what death is, we should be terrified. Because death is the judgment of God. Right? When someone says, well, they're not in pain any longer. They're, not at, they're at peace. Really? Do you understand biblically what death is? As the judgment of sin? So there should be a fear of death. And that's exactly what Jesus came to rescue us from. That enslavement to the fear of death that shows up in so many ways. How do you have that Freedom. So, next point. True freedom is found only in knowing and trusting in Christ's victory over death for us. That's the freedom. He sets us free because He has removed the power of death. That's where freedom is found. And Christian, that, that's just something we have to kind of continually reckon, don't we? Because the natural fear of death will, will haunt us. It'll take over. We, we have to reckon this. Christ is risen. Christ died for me. Christ has taken the sting out of death. 
So though death is naturally fearful and the process of dying certainly is, and we know that it brings loss, we don't make light of death. It brings hurt and loss, but it's not ultimately frightening. It's not frightening ultimately for the Christian. The sting has been removed. Jesus said, you will never see death. (laughs) He didn't mean you won't die. He just means you won't see it as the ugly expression, the awful expression of God's wrath as it is. Because, remember back in verse 9, he tasted death for us. We won't taste it as it was meant to be tasted. No. It's freedom. It's victory for us. So that frees us. It frees us from this enslavement to the fear of death. It sets us free from bondage to fear, from bondage to materialism, from bondage to anxiety. It sets us free to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, right? What really counts? What's really going to matter? What really lasts? It's, it frees us to be self-denying and to take risk for Christ, like to go to hard places because we're not enslaved to the fear of death and thinking what really matters is just preserving life as long as you can. No, it's not. I, I love that story of uh, that missionary John Patton. Some of you know him, John Patton, 19th century uh, Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. These were dark islands. The native tribes, they practiced ritual cannibalism. And the first missionaries who arrived there before Patton were killed and they were eaten. And this is 20 years, less than 20 years later, Patton is preparing to go and he tells in his autobiography of, of his friend, Mr. Dickinson, means well, he pleaded with Patton, saying, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. <laughs> and I love his answer. Here's Patton's answer. Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. (laughs) That's a perspective. That's not a fear of death. We're not all called that way. But ask yourself, ask yourself this morning, what, what in your life testifies that you are free from the slavery to the fear of death. What in your life? How are you living? Let me close just with this last bullet here. Who's this deliverance for? This deliverance is for the seed of Abraham, the children of God who belong to Christ. So he says in verse 16, For surely, that is, everybody knows this, he does not give help to angels. That's that's a weak translate. Give help to, it's literally take hold of. That is, take hold of to lead them to glory. It's it's the same same word, kind of a rare word. Same word that he quotes in Hebrews chapter 8. He's going to quote Jeremiah 31, referring to what God did for the people in the Exodus, bring him out of Egypt. He took hold of them. There it's took hold by the hand. To lead. That's what he does. And he says, surely he doesn't take hold of, to, of angels. Now, that might surprise you. He's back to angels again. He just can't leave this theme of angels. This is where he's been starting about this contrast of the sun with angels. But here he's not contrasting the sun with angels. It's us with angels. And he, he began this whole section in chapter 2, verse 5 by saying, Remember, not to angels did he subject the world to come. That's not the inheritance to angels. Now, angels are majestic, supreme creatures that so powerful. We've talked about angels before in here. But they are not the center of God's redemptive plan. In fact, there are a host of fallen angels who rebelled. And there is no mercy. Think about that. 
there's no mercy. Is God obligated to show mercy? No. He doesn't do this for angels. So he just comes back. He's closing off now his whole argument about angels. And he just wants to impress upon this. The, the eternal son became a man, a human being, not an angel, a human being. Why? To rescue you, to rescue me. So he gives help. He takes hold of the seed of Abraham, he says. And that would have meant much to his Jewish readers. That's God's people. It's just a way to refer to God's people. And now we know that seed of Abraham includes us through faith in Christ, the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. And we are included. So he's referring to believers. All through this section, as the author here talks about Christ in his incarnation and his glory coming to rescue us, he, he doesn't have in view just kind of generic humanity, a generic state. He's talking about God's people. Bringing sons to glory, children that he has given to his son, here the seed of Abraham, right? These are God's people by faith in Christ he has come to rescue. Is that you? Are, are, you, are you really free from the fear of death? Do you, do you struggle with that? Do you wrestle under that? Maybe you, hear, maybe you say, I, I don't really know. It is frightening because I don't know. I don't know what will happen to me. Christ comes to speak this word to you. I have conquered death. I've conquered him who had the power of death. You can be free. Sins forgiven, free, and have confidence in the face of that scary death. Do you enjoy that? Do you know that? Do you know Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Only Christ. Only Christ offers that hope. May we treasure him today. Let me pray for us, and then I'll close us with his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to glory in Christ Jesus, our only Savior who has conquered death for us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? May you, may you speak those words to our heart this morning. May they be precious and real in the face of our own death, in the face of loved ones who have died and the pain is there and the hurt and the loss is real. May you comfort us with this immense comfort of the hope we have in Jesus. We thank you for it in his name. Amen. Amen.